Well, hi there. Did you miss me? Look who's back, back again. Rosie's back, tell a friend. Is that how the lyric goes? I don't know. Hey, g'day. How you going? It's Rose Cooper here. This is the Eloquent in the Room podcast. Welcome back to previous listeners and welcome to new listeners. It's been a minute since the last time I put a podcast out, but there was a period of two years where I was putting them out quite regularly. And as previous listeners know, I have spoken about in the last couple of episodes how I was not exactly burned out, but I found that the amount of energy that I was putting into making podcasts didn't quite match the feedback that I wanted to get from the podcast listening community to uh, tell me whether or not they were enjoying the podcast, asking me questions, contributing in some way, shape or form, giving me a genuine, tangible feeling that you are out there beyond the numbers that I can see when I look at my podcast statistics. I need more dopamine! There's a number there that tells you how many downloads that you're getting, but that still really doesn't tell you how many people are listening to the podcast because anyone who subscribes to any podcast will get automatic downloads every time they put a podcast out. Doesn't necessarily mean people are listening. Now, in direct contrast to that, I am also quite active on social media and there is so much instant gratification to be had there because once you get to a certain point where people are interacting, dropping comments, liking, sharing, saving your posts, the algorithm is something that everybody can harness for good (laughs) and support their favourite content creators, be it podcasts or Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, whatever. We rely on our audiences not just listening to us and offering us feedback, but also sharing our content as well. It all counts. So like I say, there is instant gratification to be had on Instagram and TikTok There's also instant anxiety to be had because there are a lot of trolls, (laughs) instant uh, warm and fuzzies because there are pockets of the internet that really are created as supportive environments, particularly for people from the LGBTQIA plus community and the mental health community, the invisible illness community, um, the bike pock community. And just generally uh, people who want to spread positive vibes community. So if you train the algorithm well enough by following certain creators and also frequenting content that feeds your heart and soul and your brain, that's pretty much all you're going to see is more stuff like that. Now, you notice I haven't mentioned Facebook From what I can gather, Facebook is all too willing to push you on a slippery slope into areas that are pipelines to conspiracy theory organisations and and all that sort of thing. This is not to say that TikTok and Instagram don't also feed those kind of 
negative ideologies. It seems that the Facebook video algorithm is a little bit too hungry to enlist people into bad ideas and time-wasting stuff. But I just, I've just all but given Facebook a miss. I do drop things there from time to time because I do have followers on the Eloquent in the Room page and I do have lots of friends and family on my private Facebook. So I drop things there just to let people know that I'm alive, but for the most part I only use Instagram and TikTok. Now, when I joined TikTok, it was reluctant, very reluctant because I was afraid of the bullies and trolls and I knew I'd being a youth-oriented platform that I was bound to cop a lot of shit just for being an older woman uh, and also just for being a woman. So being an older woman is just adding insult to injury in regards to the way trolls operate. Uh, So I dipped my toe in quite tentatively uh, but mainly observed how it worked, tried to learn the ropes in regards to doing trendy shit. Um, And when I do trendy shit, I usually subvert it or bend it to meet my agenda which is about anti-bigotry but it's the stuff I do on anti-ageism that has captured the imagination and heart of a lot of uh, followers who are a little bit younger than me and just really love to see (laughs) that the end is not nigh in regards to being a vital happy productive human and sure I suppose sexy people like to think that uh, one's relevance in society one's validation in society does rest on being still considered fuckable and I don't really like to uh, feel like I'm sliding backwards in my evolution as a human being by leaning into that I'm still fuckable even though I'm older kind of uh, mentality. Because that's just so fucking superficial. But that's that's navigating patriarchy. That's navigating capitalism. That's navigating whatever, doing what I need to do to capture people's attention in order for them to see the message that I am also promoting. So while I do like to uh, look nice and and be a bit sassy from time to time, and admittedly those are the ones that people seem to like the most, uh, I also keep it real and do a lot of posts where I'm not wearing makeup, <gasps> where I'm looking every single second of my 60, almost 61 years... Uh, just because keeping it real is the fucking point. <laughs> you can't be an anti-ageism activist if you're just trying to be pretty while getting older. That's seriously, I kind of hate that. I kind of hate the the use of, uh, you know, lots of filters and reliance on uh, certain cosmetic enhancements and, and whatever people do just to say, see, I am a likable older person because I am beautiful. It feels so much like pandering. Oh, geez, I got up on a fucking soapbox. I really didn't mean to, but that's just the way that went. I'm sure Ryan won't mind. Who is Ryan? Now, when I first joined TikTok, which is what I started to say a minute ago, I did uh, start following people that I was already following on Instagram. And I also took notice on who they were following. 
And then I just started scrolling through the For You page and I was immediately struck by the volume of gently spoken, kind, but passionate feminists there of the male persuasion. Enter stage left, Ryan Bayron, also known as the Alchemistic. And uh, Ryan was one of the first people that took my attention. Turns out that chronologically, I think I started following him around about the time he posted something that gained him 300 thousand followers literally overnight he had 300 one minute and almost 300,000 the next Um, and I guess it fell into my for you page because it was pinging all over the place and it was love at first sight and sound because this guy is not only a sweetheart he's also a really wonderful storyteller a very engaging storyteller So that is why he has continued to gain more and more followers since that fateful day a year ago. So let's get into it. Previous listeners know that if my interviews go for longer than 90 minutes, I do like to divide them into separate episodes. I won't keep you waiting too long for part two. It'll probably drop on the weekend. But in the meantime, enjoy this lovely conversation I have with an extraordinarily lovely human being. Oh yeah, and we had all the technical difficulties. It took us about an hour to get our audio right and the internet connection was kind of wobbly throughout. So I've done my best to edit those wobbly bits out. So here we go. Ryan, Ryan, Ryan. Rose, Rose, Rose. (laughs) You are so worth the wait. This will hopefully be maybe a series of uh, TikTok interviews and I'll call it What Makes You TikTok? (laughs) (laughs) because it is a compulsion after a while how'd you get here (laughs) in a nutshell (laughs) and we could talk about mummy and daddy oh man it's so hard to put that in a nutshell i mean it did start with my daddy issues and my upbringing because the thing that really like put me on the map was me talking about therapy and i wouldn't have gone to therapy had i not had the childhood i had you know so it's all connected as it always is but i i mean the short version of how i became like a tiktok person was I was just making videos for nobody uh just kind of like doing what everybody does you just make the content you want to make because no one's watching anyway and I had maybe 300 followers that basically TikTok just gives you if you make content uh, Mm -hmm. consistently um and then I made a video there was um I don't even remember what it was. There was like a, you know how like sometimes someone will pose a question and then a bunch of people will stitch that. And then that thing becomes the trend to answer that one same question. Well, someone did one of those. It was like a light switch. Like what was a light, a light switch moment that just changed everything for you. And I was just sitting there gardening and I made this little one minute video about my first day in therapy and how a conversation I had with my therapist really started to change everything. And that video went viral and I'm really hesitant to use the V word in social media circles because um i think there's a lot of people who like if something gets like a hundred thousand views it went viral no no like they keep changing uh, the, the goalposts right there's no there's no like you know uh, definition for what makes something viral so i'm not going to use like use that word to describe my own stuff unless it's really big right yeah and so i 
made the thing and then I just closed TikTok for the day and I went to sleep with 300 followers. And then the next morning I woke up with 280,000 followers and that one video had been viewed 24 million times. How did, how did that feel? Uh, Frightening. Like I, I I called my therapist and I was like, I need an emergency session now. (laughs) Like I took a week off of TikTok. I was like, I'm not making content till this isn't, till I'm not, freaking out about this. And she helped me kind of like, you know, do, do some, some exercises to reframe the number back to what it is just a number. It doesn't mean anything. Cause you know, like something like that happens and, and all of a sudden I know that I'm prone to being egotistical. I know that I'm prone to loving being the center of attention and taking up space and um, letting things go to my head. And so I immediately had this fear that all this exposure was going to make me think I was too big for my britches. And then, you know, I didn't want to do that. But mm-hmm. at the same time, that number is really hard to ignore and downplay. Yeah, really it's hard. And responsibility so know, with it. Yeah, all of a yeah. sudden, like, now I have to watch what I say because people are actually watching it. Yeah. And so then uh, the imposter syndrome creeps in. The, um, the, you know, it feels like a lot of weight that you're now carrying. And when you build up that weight slowly, you're you're able to do whatever comes next. But... It's like if I just started weightlifting and all of a sudden someone's like, here, break a record, you know, <laughs> like mm. lift this barbell. And it's like, I can't lift that. Mm. Um, so all of these things kind of happened at once. And I threw them all at my therapist and she did the thing that she does, which she reminds me to take a walk outside and breathe some air and drink some water and remind myself what's most important and all those things. And it took me about a week to calm down and stop being so afraid to say anything. Um, so when about did that happen? About a year ago. Yeah. We're just around the end of the summer of 2022, and that happened around the beginning of the summer of 2021. Right. Right. So like June, then, July. Yeah. 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 It's been a, it's been a wild, a wild year. I can for, imagine. For TikTok reasons and some non-TikTok, for a lot of reasons that like nobody on TikTok even knows about, but like yeah. this, this, this has been definitely a new variable in the equation that has made life super interesting (laughs) Mm. yeah I can imagine when that happened did you think to yourself you had to develop a strategy or did you just feel your way like did you a little bit of both did you know you wanted to become a uh, a poster boy feminist no I didn't I because that's how you landed on my feet so the, the thing I was like, I need to figure out what, um, what to say next. Right. And so I looked at the one video that everybody was commenting on and a bunch of people had some questions, some follow-up questions. What happened on your second day in therapy, all this stuff. So I kind of like looked through all those questions and found, um, and, and, you know, all the ones I thought I could answer. I made this like eight part series that turned into like a 13 part series. on just kind of answering the questions that people asked. And then those branch off into other things and those branch off into other things. And then all of a sudden we're talking about trauma healing and uh, personal development. And, you know, it just branches off into a bunch of different, different directions. And then um, at one point someone made some video about consent and I went off on them. I, I didn't even have, I wasn't even able to make three minute videos. I don't know. I don't even know if three minute videos were a thing yet, but I, I made this like so. three part series on like consent and why it matters and what it is. And I'm like yelling and screaming and getting all angry and stuff. And then that one kind of, you know, got some traction and gained a new audience. And, uh, and then I went through the same crucible, every budding male 
feminist content creator goes through uh, when that happens. You get a lot of attention from a lot of women who are relieved to see a man saying this for once instead of a woman saying it and not being heard. Mm. Um, you like the attention. You do more of it to get more of the attention. You yeah. make mistakes. People call you out. You realize that you're, you know, um, that you could be doing it better. And, uh, and you start trying to do it better. I think that's what endears you to people and particularly people like myself because there's a transparency there that last week I thought like the average jerk and now I've, <laughs> I've got things figured out and you're very, very sincere about what you're saying. So what was, what was the kind of the hardest or one of the hard things that was for you to, to learn and then disseminate that information because you be simultaneously feeling pain at learning these things and discovering these things about yourself. Cause I know as a woman, feminism has affected me that way. And I only beat myself up the average internal misogyny that goes on with me, but actual, <laughs> actual misogyny that men have it. I can imagine as a painful experience. Yeah. I, the, the, the most difficult thing for me to learn throughout all of this was how to actually reach men. Cause I can sit here and parrot on my platform, the things other women are saying from their experience all day long, hoping that the people who need to hear it will hear me say it and it'll get somewhere because I'm a man. And then, but even, even that's, it feels like the right answer when you stumble into it, but then you realize that that's actually not the right answer because you're still giving them more reasons not to have to listen to women. Mm. You know, if they're already predisposed not to listen to women and they're not listening to women. So then you take what women are saying and you say, here, this, this woman said this and you'll listen to it because it's coming from me. Well, I'm not doing anything to make him want to actually listen to women. Yeah. You know, like I'm kind of perpetuating the problem. Um, and so you go through these phases of thinking, oh, this is the best way to be a male ally. And then, and you see what happens and like, Oh, that's, that's actually making it worse. Okay. This is the best way to be a male ally. And, and finally what I settled on was like the best way to be a male ally is stop trying to be an ally to women all together and start working with men on, on um, healing mm. men. Because really the problem is that men need to heal. Mm. The only reason men act this way is because they're programmed to in a, in a system that teaches them to be this way. But in the very same voices that tell us to disrespect women also in the same turn, tell us to disrespect each other for the same things. Yeah. And we do. And so at some point I had to realize like, Oh, if I do this for women, no matter how I do it, I'm going to be doing it wrong. I need Mm. to be doing it for men. Mm. And as I help men heal from the traumas that they endured, to produce men who feel the need to keep that trauma in circulation. Mm. And as I help men um, who weren't really given a better script to read Mm. and give them a better script to read, Mm. then the misogyny problems uh, will affect every life that those men touch, Mm. you know? And so really the thing is like, I need to find the most misogynist men, the most patriarchally minded men, Mm. And figure out how to connect with them in a way that they'll be open to healing and reprogramming. Yeah. Uh, and if I can do that, that's that's going to be that's going to go so much farther mm-hmm. than just trying to kind of be a, a, a go between between the women who are oppressed and the men who are doing the oppressing. Yeah. You know, and that that was hard to learn. 
because being a man who grew up being taught certain ways about manhood and having to pick that apart and, and um, deconstruct it little by little. And I still am. I had yeah. one of my female friends call me out this week on, on a misogynist thing that I said, and I didn't realize it was misogynist. And she told me, Hey, that's like not great. And I was like, Oh man, thanks. Because I, mm. I don't know who knows how many other times I said that, you know? And so like, I'm still, I'm still finding little pockets of misogyny and patriarchy and I probably always will. Yeah. And, and so being raised as a man who was taught to treat women in a certain way and many a certain way and yourself a certain way, I, I can empathize and I understand. And I, I kind of know where they're coming from. And I know what I needed. And what I needed was someone, another man to compassionately correct me. But that compassion is key. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's like anti-racism and white people aren't really getting the point that the guilt or, or embarrassment or whatever it is that we feel is all about our ego wanting to be perfect mm-hmm. because we're taught that being right and being perfect and, and striving to to be better as a human being is is what we're taught, but we were also taught racism. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so we were mm-hmm. always we we're always on a collision course with that, and that's what I've learned from the BIPOC community, uh, particularly people like Desiree Stevens who talk about whiteness, and uh, mm-hmm. Janae Janae Khan who talks about the project of whiteness and doesn't sort of say right. white people do this, white people that do that, but talk about the whiteness that you have learned. And once you start thinking about it that way, you realize it's a concept mm-hmm. that, that goes beyond everything. And everyone is, everyone is affected by whiteness in some way, shape or form. And it's, yeah, it's a whole, right. the whole thing that you could talk about ad nauseum for hours. Um, I feel really fortunate that when I was a young slut, like at 17, that it occurred to me that there was a double standard. And we're talking back in the mm-hmm. late late 70s that it occurred to me that anybody that wanted to tell me that I was a slut for having sex with men was ignoring the fact that it was men that I was having sex with. So why was there this double standard? Um, and I, mm-hmm. I found it I found it hilarious. Mm-hmm. And this seems to be and that was the 70s. And admittedly, the 70s was also a time where there was a lot of uh, TV shows and movies and magazine articles and stuff at the end of the so-called sexual awakening in the 60s that that women were discovering orgasm. It was on the front of every magazine and all this sort of stuff. 50 years later, I find myself on TikTok spelling sex with two Gs and seeing young people still slut-shaming people. And now this rise of dude bros talking about uh, quality and all this sort of stuff, it's very, very hard for me to cope with. I hope that when you're my age, you're not looking at what you feel is the progress that you're making and the progress that the people around you are making and, and then see it slide backwards in pop in popular culture. Yeah, it's we're just up against so much. Like, like there's some pretty big dragons to slay here, right? Like things like individualism, as long as someone thinks along the lines of individualism, then they're going to find a way to separate themselves from the problem people within their demographic. It's the white person who's like, not all white people because I'm not, and I'm white. It's the men who are like, not all men because I'm not, you know, and like there's, there's a collectivist mindset that you need to adopt if you're going to really, really affect change 
change here and realize that we are all in the same boat. We're not just in the same fleet. We're in the same boat mm. and we are all affected by all of this. Mm. I think it was Braunbrunner who had his ecological systems theory, who just, you know, posited that you can, you can look at the circumstances in which somebody was born and predict most of their life. Like if someone was born into poverty, there's a 98% chance they'll die in poverty. And if someone was born uh, religious, they'll probably be religious, even if they lose their religion of origin or whatever, or, you know, like, and so you think about like the, the system that you're born into and how it has an effect on you. Well, that system is what it's people doing stuff. It's not some inanimate object. It's, it's like, it's, it's us, it's people, it's everybody uh, that is around you contributing to the world, the environment that you, so if you can't see it that way, if you are so dead set on seeing all of your actions as solely your choice yeah. that you made all on your own without influence from anyone, you will not succeed in dismantling any of this because mm-hmm. there will always be a back door through which you can escape culpability Yeah, and you will take it every time. Step one is to learn how to be comfortable with, I guess not comfortable with, learn how not to be threatened by the fact that because I'm a man, I will always have misogyny somewhere in here waiting to come out. And because I'm white, I will always have racism in here waiting to come out. You know, Mm. Um, that's just a part of it. You are inherently those things, but I'm married to the fact that you are the thing the system is designed to cater to at the expense of everyone else who's not you. Yeah. And if you can't admit that about yourself and just learn how to not be threatened by that or not feel the need to defend yourself against it, then then you haven't even achieved step one. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in your demographic, what percentage of your following is male and female? It's about three quarters female, one quarter male. Oh, all right. Well, that's, that's pretty good. When I started, it was all female. When I yeah. started, it was all, it was all women. And that, and that was part of it. it was like, I, I, I loved the attention mm. and I had to learn how to become immune to positive reinforcement from my female audience members yeah. because that will, I mean, that'll take me places that I don't need to go. You know, that's my ego, just finding something it likes and latching onto it and getting hungry for it. And that doesn't help anybody. But then on the other side of the coin is, um, I know I'm doing the real work, the real, real work when I don't get those types of responses Mm. because it's not sexy. It's not something people will like, you know, lose their shit over and celebrate and do the whole, this man needs to be protected because it's not, I don't know. It's just, it's just not, it's, it's com- being compassionate towards misogynist is mm. what it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not exciting for people who are oppressed by those very misogynists. And so yeah. it's, I know I'm on the right track when I'm not garnering that kind of attention. Yeah. And, it, and it's just amusing. Like, is there, sometimes I wonder, is there more women on TikTok than men on TikTok? Or, or what is it? Because it, it, we're making, People like you and this, these other people, mostly women making these male uh, activists blow up with following. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, um, yeah. Yeah. feel like men are surfing the wave of feminists wanting men to succeed at being feminists, and I'm not sure if the reverse is true. 
in regards to men supporting women and and rallying right. rallying men to follow right. women to the same degree. And I think that's I suppose that's just patriarchy in a nutshell. That regardless of how hard we work, right, it's never it's never going to gain the same level of success. Because I I do follow probably equal amount of men as I do women. And I guess it's because I do want to push the idea out there too by sharing and duetting and stuff. I've done a couple with you that like, if you're not going to listen to me, listen to him. <laughs> and I'm, I have mixed feelings about that because I'm like, they should, if, like, they should just listen to you. <laughs> there, yeah. You know, like I, 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 I've actually gotten to a point where if there's something I'm going to say, I first go to, I find as many of the female content creators who speak in the same spaces as I can. And if they've already said it, I'll just do it. They're them saying it instead of saying it again. Even if yeah. I didn't get the idea from them, I'll just like, I, I came up with the idea all by myself. But if it's already out there. Yeah. There's guys out there that are literally doing things word for word and doing the, if it's text, they're copying text and just putting their own face in front of it. And it's it's happening. People are at least they're starting to get busted for it, but it's not. It's but just yeah. Like, I, I it's not. Yes, and, and it's heartbreaking. Someone someone once commented on one of my videos saying, "I really like what you're saying, but it's really hard to trust you because you're a man." Mm. And I responded and I said, "Good. Mm. I I you shouldn't trust me just because." I seem like one of the good ones yeah. because there are so many men out there who will seem like one of the good ones just, just long enough for you to start trusting them and then they'll show their true colors. Mm. And it was like, I'm not exempt from the consequences of my words just because I'm charming and I've gotten this far convincing you I'm one of the good ones. Yeah. If I ever slip up, I need you to tell me. Uh, and if you and if you just decide to trust me because you want to, because you really just need to believe that one of these guys out here is good, then if I do mess up, you're you're going to rationalize it because you want to like me. Yeah, absolutely. And we can't we can't do that. You we have believe. to hold me accountable. We right. And I was like, at the end of the day, your mistrust of men is something that you your brain has created to keep you safe from men. Mm. And so I would rather you feel. Um, comfortable and safe in being skeptical of me than in feeling unsafe, making yourself trust me. Yeah. So by all means, continue to not trust me. Mm -hmm. I'm not, that's not going to hurt my feelings. It's not going to make me feel threatened. It's not going to hurt my ego or make me feel like, like my character is under attack. What it is, I see you keeping yourself safe. And the problem is that you feel the need to keep yourself safe at all. And who are you keeping yourself safe from? Men. And so it all goes back to the work here to do is to teach men how to be safe. Yeah. And in the meantime, people are going to tell you they don't trust you and you need to let them. People are going to tell you that because you're a man, they think less of you and you need to let them like you. That's part of it. Absolutely. You didn't sign up for it when you, when you were born into a male body, but that's part of it. And And that's still a small, tiny price to pay compared to what you would have to go through if you were born into a female body. It was at this point that we lost sound again. So, yeah, 15 minutes later. Wow, we're, we're really having to uh, put a lot of effort in, and I, uh, I really appreciate your time. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's like it's only lunchtime here. I'm, I'm cruising, but what, what are you now? What time are you it's, now? It's, uh, it's 10.08. It's almost my bedtime. Like, 
Mm-hmm. You know, back when I was a Christian, I would have said the demons are in the computer trying to keep this podcast from happening. The spiritual warfare. There's a segue. There's a segue, <laughs> if ever there was one. Um, back when you were a Christian, what flavor what were flavor? you and how long ago did you oh. see the actual light? <laughs> I was a Southern Baptist, uh, Protestant, conservative, fundamentalist Christian person. Yeah, so society was already misogynist, misogynist enough. Mm. Then you add religion. I, I, I grew up in an agnostic bubble, mm-hmm. um, and there was a time there where I wanted to be a Christian, but I think it was mainly because Jesus Christ Superstar <laughs> was so cool, and I'm yeah. like, and 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 all the people who play Jesus in movies are hot. Mm-hmm. So there was all of that. Yeah. So, but my. Dad was quite vehemently anti-Catholic. If anything, I was influenced against religion, but three of the six children in my family are confirmed Christians. It was never a a case of being estranged or ostracised for being Christian or the other way around. Yeah. So so who who rescued you from religion or did you just wake up one day and went, hang on a minute, this is fucked up. (laughs) It was was a very, it was a multi-step process. I mean, the first solid, like, concrete moment where I started to doubt things was actually in college. I was taking a college-level astronomy course, and I heard that what the scientists take on how planets are formed is, and that made more sense than the, than the biblical account of how planets were formed. And, but then once you decide to crack open that egg of allowing yourself to doubt parts of the Bible, then you have to figure out what the decision rules are for what in the Bible to believe and what to doubt. And then when the Bible was your standard of truthfulness, where do you find a standard of truthfulness by which to measure the truthfulness of the Bible? And so it's Mm -hmm. like jumping into open water without learning how to swim. But the only way to swim is to be in water. But the only water you have access to is like the vast open ocean, you know, like there's no intellectual safety net to catch people who are leaving a fundamentalist religion but aren't yet ready for like full-blown atheism or another religion you know there's like this there's this liminal Mm -hmm. space between them where you're just on your own and that's scary but you have to do it um and so being there of course I explored everything else that I wasn't allowed to explore when I was you know following the rules and so then I get into like energy medicine and the chakras and chi and um, I was going to say, did yeah. you feel like did you feel like uh, you wanted to go from like detaching from religion, but still felt the need to attach to a a similarly passionate idea of something? Right. Yeah, because it's like a belief in God is my is the is the native language of my innermost being. But before I could form words, I was already being indoctrinated into that belief system. And that goes deep. There's not really any rewiring that I'm at an age where my brain's just not quite that plastic anymore. (laughs) And at some, at some age you have to be like, Oh, some things are just going to be what they're going to be. I will always have a yearning to connect with something big and divine. A little disclaimer here. I don't think Ryan means to say that there is an age limit for neuroplasticity, but I think what he really is trying to say is that human beings do yearn to connect and whether it be to religion or nature or each other or to ourselves, 
we still have to feel some sort of sense of uh, ethereal quality to being alive. I don't really place too many of my chips in trying to name what that is or, or to even mm. suppose that I'm capable of comprehending it. But I don't think I'll ever be okay with just a solely, strictly mechanistic cause and effect model of reality. Were you a curious child, though? Like uh, I know um, when I've spoken to other people, yeah, that they were getting in trouble a lot for asking just for asking questions. (laughs) Yeah, I I, am curious. When in our Sunday school class, like. In our in our church growing up, there, we always loved to dabble in apologetics and try to like create intellectual scaffoldings upon which we can hang these outlandish claims in a way that makes them feel like they make sense to us. And so we were tasked with finding a leader of the church and asking them a tough question. And just, just to like, you know, it was like a little journalism thing to see like how they would answer. And um, we were supposed to, mm. the, the thing was designed for them to give you a smart answer that would allay your doubts. And I asked the pastor, I went straight to the head pastor and I was like, how do I know the Bible's real? And I was like, what, 13, something like that. And uh, he said, uh, basically, well, because the Bible says so. And that was the first time I was like, wait, that's all you have? Like, I was like, I was literally expecting some thing that I hadn't heard of yet. Like, you're going to tell me that you believe the book is the inspired word of God because the book says it's like, do you, you're a grown up. Like, you don't see that that's circular reasoning. And so I was like, well, if I wrote a book that said this was written by aliens, would you believe it was written by aliens? It's like, no, well, because why not? Well, because, you know, you're not, God didn't inspire you to do that. Well, what if he did? And so I just kind of like kept prodding and it, some of it was kind of like genuine, like on, on one level, I felt like I was sinking and I was looking to him to be my life raft because I could feel myself slipping away from believing this. And I didn't want to because my entire life, everyone in my life was a Christian. There was no one who would accept this if I doubted. They would do, I knew that. I knew that. And I didn't want that life. I wanted it to make sense. And then the other part of it was like, mm-hmm. have you been lying to me this entire fucking time? Because if you do, I'm going to stab you in the face with all of my words because I can do that. And so some of it was like jabby. Some of it was like, save me. Mm. And some of it was like genuine curiosity. Like what else is in there? What else do you have? You know? And so I was, it was a complex experience for me and it came off as me just being a brat. And Mm. so then it wasn't long after that, that my parents sat me down and told me to stop harassing the leadership of our church. And I thought, well, that's what happens when I ask questions. Mm. So I didn't Mm. anymore until, can I tell you, oh my God, can I tell you a story? Yes. Yes, I can. Okay. Thank you. My dad was a <laughs> just get comfortable. Was a preacher, not a pastor, but a preacher. And the guy could command the largest of auditoriums with the, the, the with the quietest voice. He just had presence. You know what I mean? And he was smart. He was the smartest person I've ever met in my entire life. And I remember very soon after that astronomy course. I went to him and I said, dad, I don't know if I can believe everything in this book is true the way it's written to have happened. And it was, it felt like I I felt like I was coming out of some kind of closet to him, (laughs) you know, Um, just like this big reveal that may cause him to reject and disown me. Right. And he, he said, son, do you remember um, the, uh, the first grade, we had a, we had a field day at the end of your, at the end of that school year. And we came to play games with you and, and all you wanted to do was the foot race. You just, it was just like a, just like a, mm-hmm. a it was like a, you just run this 
this little stretch of grass and whichever kid wins, wins. And you don't get like a prize or a reward, but you were just going every single time you'd run, you get back in line, you're running, get back in line. And then, and you were winning until you weren't winning anymore. And you were like, dad, why am I all of a sudden not winning anymore? I'm super fast. And uh, he told me the story of the tortoise and the hare, a pretty simple story with a pretty simple mm-hmm. moral. I'm like pace yourself, just pace yourself, you know? And so then I applied that and I started winning again. So he asked me, do you remember that? And I said, no. Um, but also what does that have to do with me not believing in the Bible? Cause like, I don't even know if I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I don't believe in the, I don't know. Like, I, I don't want, I want to, I want to not believe all of it. And you're telling me about the tortoise and the hare. And he said, okay, well stay with me. Um, your little six-year-old self, when I told you that story, did you believe that an actual tortoise, an actual hare somewhere in space and time on this planet made a wager and had a race? I said, no. And he said, okay, so is that a, is that a, is that a true story? And I said, no. And he said, that's where you're wrong. It may not be a factual story, but it became true as soon as you put it into action. You became that tortoise. And that story remained true so long as you continued to tell it through your actions. And so I said, okay, I think I see where you're going, but how do I, how do I make the creation of the universe in seven days true through my actions? How do I make dying and resurrecting three days later true through my actions? Now, I want you to put a pin in that story. I'm going to tell you a slightly different story. Uh, the same dad, the same, the same Southern Baptist ordained minister, father person, uh, was, was physically violently abusive to me and my brother for the first 11 years of our life, of my life. His dad died in a war. His uncle, who also fought in that war, raised him. There was no psychotherapy for PTSD back then. That was the, it was Vietnam. That was the war that started the research that led to the diagnosis of PTSD in the DSM. And so all he had was alcohol and anger. And so he brought the war home and he beat my dad and his brothers and their mom until they uh, ganged up on him and made him stop. But by then, he, he that was already what he had learned a man is. And so he grows up part of a religion that, that, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child's spanking is the way you teach them discipline, blah, blah, blah. And he took that to a whole nother level. It was, it was, it was physical abuse. And then we're members of the church. And of course, no one knew about this. No one knew about it at all. And uh, he goes on this first mission trip. He goes to Argentina for a week. And this was the nineties. So church mission trips were white savior complex mixed with door-to-door sales. You're just going to neighborhoods, you're asking people if they know about Jesus, and if they don't, you lead them on this trite little thing, and then, no, now say a prayer, and you're, I'll see you in heaven next, you know, and it was just, and so they were doing that, but they weren't getting, uh, they weren't getting the conversion rate he wanted. He was, he had a journal that he kept, and every single day it was nothing but complaining. All, 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 all but the last day, the first six days were complaining about the food, complaining about the weather, complaining about the people, complaining about the not being home, the, you know, the sleep he wasn't getting. But on a seven day his journal entry said six words the entire entry was six words i think i get it now i think i get it now i don't know what happened Mm. and i never will i don't need to know what happened all i know is that something happened because the man that came back from that trip was not the man who left for it and um Okay, put a pin in that for a second because I'm gonna tell you a third story. This is the this is the final one. I'm like totally doing like a Arabian Nights thing here, but uh, he was also, in addition to being a pastor, a preacher, in addition to being the guy who hit us, he was also the guy who taught us martial arts. 
for uh, two oh, hours okay. every right for two hours every Sunday Saturday morning in our church building. He created this this little micro world where he was the sensei and it was the dojo and it was very like respectable. You bow in, you bow out. There's there there was a form to it that was prescriptive. You follow this form. This is the culture, and I think maybe he didn't feel like he could Same be the father he needed to be all the time but for two hours every saturday morning he could be the dad he needed to be for us like maybe that was all he could muster up you know um but he taught us how to defend ourselves it was all self-defense he would always say like the best the the, the best way you're ever going to win a fight is by avoiding it right and it was almost like he was like uh, saying i don't think i can ever get to a point where i'm not hitting you so at the very least as your father i will work to protect you from other people who might try Maybe that's what, maybe that's what, I don't really know. We never talked about why he taught us martial arts. He just taught, taught Make us a man arts. out of you. Right. And mm. Ed, when you graduate mm. belts, there's this belt ceremony where you're on your knees and he's on his knees because he faces you as equal. That's the form of the project. And then your new belt is right between you. And he talks about why, uh, what you did to earn the belt. And he shakes your hand. He tells you he's proud of you. And then you change your belt. And that was the only time we had physical contact with our dad that wasn't abuse. It was that handshake. Mm. The only time he ever looked us in the eye and said he was proud of us. Mm. But my brother and I got very good at martial arts very quickly because we pined for those belt ceremonies. Mm. So, okay, now we're going to go back to this story. He, he gets back from Argentina and we're in our room and, uh, you know, my dad was Hawaiian and my uh, and my mom was Italian, so there was always food. And usually, when when they get called out of our rooms, that means there's food or someone's getting hit. Um, and so we got called out of our rooms by our dad. And we, I remember walking down the hall, thinking of like, what could I have done that I could get hit for, and how can I blame it on my brother? Like I was already in self defense mode. And he's there in the middle of our living room, kneeling with three wrapped trinkets in front of him. And we had never encountered anything like this before, but we kind of knew the form. And so we all took our places in front of these little wrapped souvenirs. Um, and he said that he was not the father he should have been. And he said that he, um, he regrets having hit us. He regrets having taught us that that's okay. He's never gonna do it again. And from that day on, that he's going to be the best father he possibly can, starting with apologizing for all the violence he inflicted on us up to that point. And so it was kind of the belt ceremony to end all belt ceremonies, but we weren't the ones that graduated that day. Mm-hmm. And he, he kept that promise. He kept that promise. Um, How old he, were you? I was 11 years old. Mm-hmm. And from that day on, he was, uh, he was the stuff of legend. He was the, he was the best father mm-hmm. I've ever known or seen. He, like when, when a man looks into the eyes of, their, of his very first child and realizes he has gone from being not a father to a father, and he starts to imagine what kind of father he has to be for this precious new life that depends on him, mm-hmm. the man he's imagining is the man my dad became. He, is, he was the mm-hmm. model for what a father, what real fatherhood and real manhood is. Um, Mm. and so then, okay, we're going to take that pin out and go back to the first story. There I am saying, how do I know, how do I do death, burial and resurrection? How do I live that out? And he turned and looked at me and with that, that signature preacherly shout whisper, he just said, son, remember who you're talking to. 
Don't think for a second that I do not live out death, burial, and resurrection every single day. And right then and there, it all melted away. My need to know whether or not those things in the book happened the way the book says they happened vanished. It didn't matter to me anymore if those accounts were factual. What mattered is, are they true? And the only way to decide whether or not they're true is whether or not we choose to live them out. Are we going to be the tortoise and the hare or are we just going to say, cool story, no thanks? And so now I engage with that book, I engage with those stories, I engage with the character that is Jesus in a way where I am looking for the things about him that I want to emulate. And I put those into practice. And so in that way, some version of the Jesus story will remain true as long yeah. as there is breath in my lungs. Yeah. And that was kind of the beginning of the end for me. I was, I was like, I don't even, I was, I'm at a, I started being like, if you were to ask me if I'm a Christian and I were to tell you, no, I would have misled you just as much as if I said, yes, I engage with the book. I love the Jesus character. Not all of it. I mean, he says some really wacky things in there, but for the most part, you know, he's, he's, he's solid. Um, and, and I, I, I can't help but commune with what I, imagine to be the divine energy that connects all of us and keeps everything in motion through the Jesus story specifically. Um, if that makes me a Christian, cool, but I'm not a member of a church. I'm not um, singing, <laughs> singing praise songs. Well, it's, okay. yeah, it's, okay. it's an integration of, uh, of a way of being that is a language and an inner language that you've learned to think in. Right. You're learning a new language, but the original language is still there. Like when other people become bilingual, they're still kind of uh, translating in their head. And it, right. You know, until it becomes right. automatic. But it's well, like, still, you, yeah, you have your not, language that yeah. you learn and you learn a new language, but you speak that new language in the accent of your first one. You know, I, I can speak atheism with a theistic accent, if that yeah, makes sense, yeah. you know, yeah. and it'll always be there and I'm okay with that. I'm okay. I don't, it's weird to find a word to describe where I am spiritually, but the more people I encounter on their journeys, the more I realize how much the words we do have fail the majority of the population, mm. you know, and. Uh, yeah, I feel, I feel that if you can integrate your personal accountability into what you're doing. You can believe whatever you want so long as you don't sort of believe something which is a conduit to you hating on and, and feeling like you're, you're going to get preferential treatment in heaven and all this other stuff that has all the religions vying uh, like it's some kind of a race scoreboard. Right. And, and like th th those are such pervasive ideas. Like going back to the feminist thing, like if you operate that way where you, everything you do is governed by, am I going to get heaven for this or hell for this? Then you always have mm -hmm. an external locus of morality and the mm -hmm. way people respond to your actions are going to define your moral compass. It's not going to come from within. So as a male mm -hmm. feminist, when you do things, you're going to say, are the women going to respond favorably to this or not favorably to this? That's mm -hmm. how you decide what you should do. And you're always chasing 
something that's not really going to get you anywhere. And if you do something, if you stand up for somebody or you, or you, you do something, you do some feminism, right. And not enough women thank you for it and praise you for it. And, you know, they'll do all, then you're going to, then you, you might turn your back on them. If that's the reason why you might say, well, if you're, I'm, I'm, if I'm not going to get gratitude, then I, you fend for yourselves, you know, and then all of a sudden you are the, yeah. you are your own target audience. It can't be mm. external, but the, the modern Protestant, not even Protestant, the modern heaven hell dichotomy teaches people how to operate that way. And then you also have the individuality, yeah. right? You have the ind- individualism, right? The, choose this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Like you got to do your salvation. Mm-hmm. I got to do my salvation. That was more of a Paul thing than a Jesus thing. But let's be honest, Paul has more sway on Calvinist thinking than Jesus does anyway. And Calvinism is like running mm-hmm. rampant in the Protestant world, which is why there's so many. So yeah. like, it's this whole, like, I can't, I can't do anything about whether or not you, you get saved and go to heaven. All I can do is worry about me. So like, I can't keep you from being racist. All I can do is make myself be racist, you know? And like, and, and, and it, it, there are so many things baked into modern popular Christian theology that systemically stunt us as a society mm-hmm. when it comes to doing work to liberate oppressed people. And it's not even like your theology is wrong. It's like, no, the building blocks of your theology Mm. are keeping you from building allyship because you're using those same building blocks and they don't work. Mm. And so it's not even like, I want to bring down Christianity, but like, can we at least reform it? Can we at least make a version of Christianity that's made of the Mm. same building blocks that, um, you know, systemic social justice reform are also made from? I feel like we could uh, we could unpack religion a lot. <laughs> yes, we could. Yes, we really, really could. That was the end of part one. And we go off on many, many other tangents in part two. Just talking to Ryan is so much fun. I love his articulate turn of phrase, the way he's able to encapsulate his feelings and translate those feelings into an intellectualized version of what he w- what he felt, what he was going through. And when you're talking about religion, you don't often hear many intellectualized versions where uh, your better judgment and your deep-seated uh, belief systems are at odds. And I just think he captured that really well. Um, as I said, I was raised by atheists. So while I don't relate to the indoctrination of being religious, I do relate to having a, a feeling that there was something missing. It was love. <laughs> I had a very troubled childhood. Um, so in lieu of love and no religion, um, you are going to head off on a troubled journey through life looking for something to fill the hole, something to validate your existence, something to make you feel good about yourself and um, I've touched on those kinds of topics in previous podcasts. If you are new, do go back and listen to some earlier ones. Interestingly, I really wanted to plant a new single that I put out a few months ago as the sign-off song for this podcast. And the song is a punk anthem uh, from the point of view of a woman 
demanding more foreplay. So, you know, I just thought that would fit. But I don't think it fits coming in straight after we were talking about religion. So I'm going to hold off and put the single at the end of part two. (laughs) So as not to disturb the rhythm of the conversation too much. Having said that, it is out on Spotify and iTunes and wherever you listen to music. Um, And it's called SMT. Uh, There is also a video clip on my YouTube at The Eloquent in the Room, but I will actually pop the single on the end of the podcast next episode. By the way, if you like my music, you do get free downloads if you were to join my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash The Eloquent in the Room. And I also have a coffee app now, K-O-F-I. So I'll put a link to all of that as well as uh, links to cool creators on TikTok and links to all of Ryan's stuff. Ryan's got some really cool stuff. He did a TED Talk about eight years ago, and it's really cute. It's really cool. Um, He's the second TED Talker I've had an interview with, previous one being Cheryl Bradshaw. Mate, I am rubbing shoulders with cool people. And who remembers Patsy Minuto? I spoke to her last year as part of my series, which I called uh, the Madonna Whore Diaries, talking about the Madonna Whore Complex. She's known as Hella Cougar on TikTok. And at that time, I think she had about 85,000 followers. That's ballooned out now to about 300,000, give or take. I haven't checked lately, but the last time I looked, it was approaching 300,000. Um, she's a lot of fun. She's got a great TikTok. Maybe we'll chat again as part of this series, Chatting to TikTokers. Um, but her interview with me on this podcast is probably the second most popular um, episodes that I've done. The most popular still being the first series, which was 2020, An Orgasmic Oddity, where we unwrap the mythology and the mystique of the female orgasm. I will approach that topic again, I promise. I do have more to say about that. Anyway, I'm going to shut up now, or the entire point of having two episodes to make these shorter (laughs) is going to prove a bit uh, ironic. Love yous all. I'll talk to you soon. I promise it'll be a lot sooner than the last time I said that.